until after the till after the sermon. Let's pray. Father, you are our guide, our protector, our deliverer, and uh, you are the source of all blessing. And so we praise your name and ask that you would help us tonight to be able to revel in your care for us and to recognize in a clearer way how much you love us and how much you're with us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the previous psalm, David was in danger, you remember. He was on the brink of death. He was surrounded by his enemies. You remember his body was wasting away. And God was far away in the sense that he hadn't responded to to David in providing physical deliverance. And so he cries out at the beginning of the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it's a, a very serious lament psalm. He's sorrowful for his condition. He he's, complains his case or, or states his case to God. And Jesus uh, follows that example and um, and really feels David's pain in an even greater way. Well, this 23rd Psalm serves as a contrast to that 22nd Psalm. Here, David is now in a place of safety and protection and provision and abundance. And instead of wasting away and being fearful of his enemy, he is confident in his God, his leader. And he's happy to be in that position. And this is a favorite psalm of many, perhaps a favorite psalm of some of you. It was written by David, as it says there below the psalm number. And it falls under the category of trust psalms. So, again, the trust psalm that we've seen several of them, but they are psalms that focus on relying on God, having confidence in God, and then they talk about the security that there is in, in that trust. So let me read our psalm for us, and then we'll, we'll examine it together. This is the Word of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. After looking at this psalm, you should come away with the understanding that the Lord is your faithful provider and protector. The Lord is your faithful provider and protector. First, the Lord is your faithful guide or your provider, verses 1 through 4. The Lord is your faithful guide or provider in verses 1 through 4. And then second, we'll see that the Lord is your host. That's where we'll see kind of His provision for us, His abundant blessing. That will be in verses 5 and 6. But first, your faithful guide. Here, God is pictured as a shepherd. David would have understood this metaphor, right? Because when he was a young man, he tended his father's flock. And then as, a, as an older man, he tended God's flock. Right, the people of Israel. In fact, the kings in those days were often referred to as shepherds of God's people. God is referred to as a shepherd of His people. Here He's saying, I am the shepherd of my sheep. And, and, and so God, instead of describing a relationship between the King David and His people, 
God here is describing a relationship between Him and us. That God is our shepherd means that He will protect and provide for us. That's what a shepherd does. And He'll also... Uh, uh, so we'll see His provision and guidance in verses 1-3 through three, and then His protection in verse 4. So, so first, His provision and guidance. There's several things that the shepherd provides for His sheep. First, nourishment in verses 1 and 2. Nourishment. The Lord provides nourishment for our souls by giving exactly what we need. He says, I shall not want. The word want doesn't have the same meaning that it used to have. We, we think of want today as a desire. I want something. So if we're without want, we're, we're without desires. But that's not what the text has, intends. I don't think that's what David has in mind. I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit has in mind. I think the idea is that we will be without any needs. We will be without wanting, without needs. That's the idea. Instead, or what God is saying is, I am your shepherd and I will give you everything you need as my sheep. And I think the New International Version translates it well. It says, I lack nothing. That's the idea of, not that I have every single thing I've ever wanted, you know, because we often want bad things. No, it's that I have everything I need. And this verb, it actually has a future sense to it. Notice it says, I shall not want. I shall, I will not want. It's something that I'm confident will not happen. And this is an amazing expectation by David. Because we are people who constantly don't have enough. right? We always think we need a little bit more. Two pieces of pizza are better than one. right? Two bags of M&Ms are better than one. Two cars are better than one. $200 bills are better than one. And so we're constantly thinking that we need more. And yet David is saying, I will not have any needs since God is my shepherd. And the reason that he can say that is because along with the 10,000 things that God provides for him every single day, um, God provides beyond our needs and goes on to give some of our desires as well. You see, the, the desires that we have were not ultimately meant to satisfy us. They were not supposed to be ends in themselves. That is, that that's the final end that we desire in it. But it's really just a means to an end. It's a, it's a way in which we can desire God. So when God gives me a gift, I can enjoy it. I can be thankful for it. I can have joy in that gift as long as I find my greatest desire in God. And that's what God's saying. You see, we, we have our desires, but, but as Augustine once said, our heart is restless until we find our rest in God. And so the point is, is that because God is my shepherd, I will have everything that I need. Not everything that I desire, but everything that I need. I will not lack anything that I need. The Lord provides this nourishment. goes on in verse 2 to talk about leading us to green pastures. Green pastures are a place for sheep to go, and it's a picture of sustenance and safety. A weary, starving sheep wants nothing more than to be led to a place where there is plenty of food and plenty of safety, and this is what God is doing. He's leading you and me to a place of nourishment and safety. 
Now, it's true that God does provide for us physically. We have promises of God providing for our physical needs. But, but I think primarily what David is talking about is he's speaking metaphorically for spiritual things. So he's talking about God, his relationship to his sheep, sheep not so that he can say, hey, you people, you're going to have all your physical needs met. That is true. But, but ultimately, he, what he's talking about is you're going to have your spiritual needs met. And the reason I think that is because of verse 3. Notice, he restores my soul which has to do with our immaterial person, the the immaterial part of our person, that is. That is, the the spiritual part. And so, in this metaphor, what we should see is that while God is being our shepherd, He's ultimately shepherding us in a spiritual way, and that's what He promises to do here, to lead us to a place of nourishment and safety. Now, in addition to the nourishment, God also provides refreshment and healing. The second part of verse 2 we see the refreshment, and then the first part of verse 3, we see the healing. So refreshment um, says, He leads me beside quiet waters. So God doesn't take him to a fire hose. Imagine trying to drink from a fire hose or, or a rushing river or an ocean with these crashing waves. That's not where God takes those sheep, and, and God doesn't take us. We are those sheep, Right? No, He takes them to a place of quietness and stillness and a place where you feel comfortable drinking from that spring or that, that, river, or that, um, that body of water. He provides refreshment. He also provides healing in verse 3. He restores my soul. See, part of the benefit of going to quiet waters was not only for the refreshment that it provided for thirsty animals and people, but also that it would be used to help care for the wounds of the sheep. And so aren't you thankful that God knows exactly what you need? Aren't you thankful that God is always working for your good? He's there to help heal your wounds, not to create them. He leads you to be satisfied in what is best. He knows what's best for you and He's going to lead you there. He gives you an abundance of what you need spiritually, that water, both to refresh you and to heal you. Refresh at the end of verse 2, heal at the beginning of verse 3. And in doing so, He actually restores your soul. Now, let's just think about a sheep. Why would a sheep need to be restored? Why would it need to be healed? Is it not because it was wounded, right? Either because of an attack. The sheep could have gotten attacked not because of something that he had done, but just because a wolf got in or whatever. Or the other case is where the sheep went off into a place where he shouldn't have. You know, Jared and Corey have sheep and they've already had some um, experiences where the sheep have gotten themselves into situations that caused danger to them and one of them actually hung himself because he was going to a place where he shouldn't have been going right and and that's why we need that's why we need the healing because sometimes we're attacked from outside and we have wounds from that or sometimes we bring upon trouble on ourselves that is a self-inflicted kind of wound we we kind of go off on our own path where we shouldn't have gone and as a result, we have some wounds that need to be healed. And God says, no matter what, what happened, okay, no matter what kind of wound, uh, what, what kind of source there was to that wound, I'm going to be there to lead you to healing, spiritual healing. 
See, we sometimes are the victim of attacks from enemies, spiritual enemies. Sometimes we bring upon ourselves spiritual danger, and yet God doesn't lead us to a place where He can scourge us some more, right? Back us into a corner and take His rod and just let go on us. But rather, He is very gentle and caring, and His goal for you and I and me is restoration. He wants to restore your soul. So no matter where you are spiritually, been hurt by someone else, have you done some hurt that has brought upon some spiritual consequences? No matter where you are, God's mission, one of God's great missions in your life is to restore you. He wants to do what Jesus did to Peter. And Peter brought upon himself danger by denying Christ three times and then just felt like he had given up on Christ, like like he had dropped the ball. He promised, Jesus, I will go with you. They'll all turn away, but, but even if they do, I won't. I'm going to be with you all the way until the end. I don't know Him. I swear to God I don't know Him. Right? I really don't know Him. Do you know what Jesus did to him? Go tell Peter and the disciples to go to wait in in um or was it Jerusalem? And I'm going to come and see them. Why why does he mention Peter there? Because he wants Peter to know that he's he's bringing about the restoration process. Peter, you haven't done anything that's that's damned your soul. Okay, I I am on your side. And then what does he do when he meets him? on the beach when they're eating the fish. He says, Peter, feed my sheep. you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. And he says it three times, I think, as a way to, to kind of show that, Peter, you're restored. See? And Peter becomes one of Christ's great spokespersons. See, no matter where you are in your wounding, Christ is working to heal you spiritually. The shepherd, in addition to providing nourishment and refreshment, he also provides guidance at the end of verse 3. He guides me, in the middle of verse 3 really, He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Here's what you can bank on. It is that God is always going to lead you toward righteousness. God will never lead you on a path toward unrighteousness. So again, we see that God is working for our best interests, isn't He? So every... Listen to this. Every roadblock, every detour, every obstacle that comes into your life, every annoyance, every setback, every difficulty, every illness, every loss that you face in life is designed by our sovereign conductor. Like an orchestra conductor, he kind of puts everything together so that it makes one beautiful sound. He's doing all that, orchestrating everything in your life to lead you exactly where He wants you to go. Now, the problem is, right? we don't always follow Him. God's constantly bringing up circumstances and messages and, and Bible reading and, and thoughts and so on. He's bringing up all these things to direct us where we need to go. But sometimes we're like the, the sheep that, that don't want to listen. And so we don't always follow but here's how you can tell if God is leading you. Right here in verse 3. He guides me in the path of righteousness. God always guides you towards what is right. 
So if your conscience or your friend or even if your closest relative tells you that you can trespass against God in order to get something or someone better, then that is not your shepherd leading you. In other words, you can test the direction of your life against Scripture. If it's a path of righteousness, that's God, your shepherd leading you. Because God's not going to have you cross over boundaries that are unrighteous in order to get you to a place where you have rest and nourishment. You may see something that you want out there. God's never going to lead you on a path of righteousness to get there. If that's something that's in God's will, He'll lead you on a path of righteousness to get you there. Do you see? So let me just try to illustrate. You might think that it's God's will for this girl that you met at work to get saved. That's a good goal. That would be something that God would want to see happen. But then, you come up with the idea that she's going to get saved by you getting married to her, which requires that you either divorce your wife to marry her, or, if you're single, simply marry her even though she's an unbeliever. And both of those in the Scripture are clearly sin. Now, not divorce, just any divorce, but divorcing for the wrong reason, which is what's happening there. And then marrying an unbeliever is clearly sin in the Scriptures. And so, while you may be concerned about a good goal, the woman's soul, that's not God leading you. Okay, So, it's just a really extreme example. But the point is, is no matter what it is that's out there, your Father, your Shepherd, is always going to lead you on a path of righteousness. He doesn't buy what our society says, the end justifies the means. So as long as you have a good end in mind, doesn't matter how you get there, just get there. That's not how God works. He's always going to lead you on a path of righteousness. And that means something else. Not just that He's not going to lead you astray, lead you to do something evil in order to get something good, but He's also always, no matter how hard the road gets, it's always a path of righteousness that He's leading you to. And that means when the path ahead seems hard and windy and steep and dark and dangerous and life-threatening, if it's God that's leading you, then you can be sure it's for your good and it is a righteous path. So how can we be sure that God will lead us to nourishment and refreshment and healing and to righteousness? The answer comes at the end of verse 3. Because He's doing all this for His name's sake. We can know that God will lead us because... Do you know what's at stake here in God leading you as His child, as His sheep? His reputation is at stake. You see, God's name, His reputation, is tied to our care. Why? Because as the Good Shepherd, He has promised to care for us. And so if He fails, then His Word is empty. His Word is fraudulent. It's of no value. I mean, what would it say about God as our Shepherd if He either were unable to lead us in the right direction, or if He purposely led us in a direction that led us toward evil. What would it say about our God? It would say that He's either incompetent or evil. And what He's saying is, I've promised you that I will lead you to a place of goodness and rest and righteousness and nourishment and protection and safety. And so if I can't do that, my name's at stake. 
People will defame me. And God won't allow that to happen. So, nourish, nourishment. The Lord is our faithful guide to nourishment, refreshment, guidance. And then in verse 4, safety. As our shepherd, He leads us to safety. And this is amazing. Even though there will be times of danger. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. Our shepherd leads us to safety even though there will be times of danger. As a Christian, for however many number of years you've been saved, you recognize that all of life is not green pastures and still waters. Sometimes our lives as Christians require us to go through dark valleys. This phrase here, shadow of death, in verse 4, is a little unclear in Hebrew. Uh, there are no spaces. If you're just to read a Hebrew original uh, manuscript, you'd find no vowels. They don't have any vowels. They just have consonants. And you'd find no spaces. So it's hard to tell when they're starting. They can tell because of context. But, but it's hard for us to tell whether they meant two words here or one. If it, if it were two words, or I'm sorry, if it, if it were one word, the meaning would be deep darkness, even though I walked through the deep darkness. If it were two words in the Hebrew, then it would be shadow of death. The valley of deep darkness or, or, or shadow of death. Both of those images, I think, are not opposing each other, so it's not... It's not terrible to have the translation that we have. So even if it means deepest darkness or darkest valley, then it still could include death, right? So I don't think we've been wrongly applying it all these years when we apply it to death. I think it's completely appropriate to say that God will lead us even in times of death, right? We, we like to think about this around um, a believer who's dying or at a funeral or something. We, we often hear this psalm read. But we can't miss the point. The point of this is that the dark valley is not the final stop. It's simply a passageway that the shepherd uses to get us to that place of safety and provision and abundance. It's the place that that leads us to the still waters and the green pastures. And so what we need to know is that in the times of trouble, God's not leading us there in order to punish us or to harm us. Like, you you dumb sheep. This is what you get now. You're going to go through a deep trial. That's not why God takes you through trials. God does it to bring you out the other end to safety and provision. And so do you trust Him? Do you trust Him to lead you even through the darkest of valleys? Even when threat is the threat of death is looming over you. Whatever circumstances come into your life, whether you were innocent or guilty and bringing it upon yourself, innocent, you know, you're attacked from the outside, or guilty because of some sin, we could say what Joseph said, right? They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or I even meant it for evil and and bring this sin and this consequence upon me. I meant it for evil, but God actually meant it for good. He's going to accomplish something good through this. A close friend of mine just recently 
had his world rocked, figuratively speaking. There was a terrible tragedy that a family member of his was involved in, and it, it changed the whole course of my friend's life. And I'm thankful that, that through this time that my friend is depending on God through the whole process of walking through this dark valley. Maybe you've had a situation like that yourself where your world just got turned upside down. Can you think of a time in which that happened? Hasn't it been your testimony that God was working in that situation for your good? I mean, can you testify with David that even in a terrifying time such as that where where you didn't know what was going to be on the other side, you, you just saw all blackness and darkness, that you could say with David that you could have hope and confidence in God. Look at the end of verse 4. Oh, I'm sorry, the middle of verse 4. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Even though, I said first, our shepherd leads us to safety, even though there will be times of danger. And then here in the middle of verse, in times of danger, we don't have to fear. And why is it that we don't have to fear? What does it say there in the text? God just kind of stands at the at the peak, sees the dark valley below, and says, "All right, go. I'll see you on the other side." Not our God, and that's why we can go down there because our Shepherd's right there with us. He's leading us all the way. And you know, we have that promise—the same promise that David had. And we should have a better promise, which is that. God says in Hebrews 13.5 that I will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't ever have to fear that God will turn His back on you and say, you know what, I'm done with you. God's promised to always be with you. Do you believe that? Jesus promised the same thing, hasn't He? Matthew 28.20 And behold, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So you don't have to fear. And do you know Jesus is with us always? in the person of a Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our eternal rewards. We know that we'll receive future rewards because we're already experiencing part of that reward in, in having God with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so why can we be like David in verse 4 that we don't fear when it, we walk into these dark valleys? The answer is because God is near. God is with us. And you know, that's what believers cling to most in times of trouble. All of these things that are happening outside don't know how it's all going to turn out, don't know why these people are against me, don't know why I'm experiencing such deep uh, and, and troublesome consequences for my sin. But what I do know is that God hasn't abandoned me and that God is near. And that's the hope and the confidence that we can have. Though we walk through the dark valleys, God is near. The method of God's leading is His rod and staff at the end of verse 4. The rod and staff are seen as a comfort when the rod and staff are actually used as a partially as a means to direct a person. And sometimes that's corrective discipline. The rod was used to prod in the right direction. It was just a straight staff, uh, a straight uh, stick, basically. And it would be used to just prod the sheep. Hey, you need to move in this direction. Or when there's an attacker, it would be used to protect the sheep from attackers. Sometimes it would be used to, to help discipline them. The staff was the, the hooked 
rod effectively. It was used to protect them from going off in a way that would harm them. So you're walking down a path, maybe near a cliff, and the, the sheep start to wander a little bit, and he just takes the hook, puts it around his neck, pulls him back in. And see what David's doing? Is he's saying, listen, as I start to move towards trouble and danger, do you know what God does for me? He kind of grabs me and pulls me back. And you know what that does for me? It comforts me. But David, isn't it uncomfortable? You don't get to have the freedom that you want? David's like, no, I love it. Because God is always leading me in righteousness, isn't He? He's always leading me on that path of righteousness. I can trust Him. He's a good shepherd. I think God has done that countless times to me as well. When I start walking near a spiritual cliff, because of my aloofness or because of rebellion, God wraps the hook of His loving staff around my neck and brings me back on the path of righteousness. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not have anything... I will not have any needs go unmet. So the Lord is your faithful guide. And if you haven't found enough to be thankful for in these first four verses, then... Just stick with me because it gets better. It's amazing, this psalm. Here in verses 5 and 6, we see not just that the Lord is our faithful guide, but He's also our loving host. The Lord is your loving host in verses 5 and 6. There's two metaphors here that He shows us. First, at a banquet, and then secondly, at God's house or the sanctuary. So the metaphor changes from a shepherd-sheep metaphor and it's now replaced with a host-guest metaphor. So now you have been picturing yourself as a sheep, hopefully, and God, your shepherd, has been leading you. Now you picture yourself as a bank- at a banquet where God is the host and the table's prepared for you like Joseph prepared for his brothers when they came. And think of how much he gave to Benjamin. How he gave him just extra helpings because he wanted to show that, that he especially cared for Benjamin. And this table that's being prepared for you here in verse 5 shows you that, that you are Benjamin to God. He's abundantly supplying for you. Outside is all the danger and the threats. Inside, you know, the king. Just think King Joseph, effectively. He's prime minister, really, of, of Egypt. But... Is there anything to fear when you're sitting at the king's table, the prime minister's table? Hey, you, if you eat with the president, are you afraid that someone's going to attack you? No, because he's got protection for you. And that's the idea that we have not only abundance, but protection. So the abundance is seen at the beginning of the verse. You prepare a table before me. There's the abundance. We'll talk about that more here in just a second when we get to the end of verse 5 with the, my cup overflowing. But in addition to the the abundance, there's also safety. Did you notice who's there at the banquet? See, we're sitting at the table, but, but we're doing it in the presence of my enemies. So think of David from Psalm 22, where his enemies are pictured as lions and bulls. It's as if David goes and sits down before God at his banquet. And all of his enemies are watching on, but restrained, unable to do anything to him because God the King has restrained them. 
In addition to the abundance and safety, there is honor. He anoints my head with oil. Anointing with oil was a way to honor a person, particularly a king, perhaps a house guest. In the heat of the sun, the travelers would be refreshed by having oil poured on their head. I don't see any pleasure in that, but but for them in the ancient Near East, that was something special. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 9? They were judging the immoral woman who was washing his feet and anointing him with oil. He said, you Pharisees did not anoint my head with oil. In other words, you didn't treat me like an honored guest. You haven't shown me the honor that I deserve. That's your problem. And yet she is, and you're criticizing her for that. You see, she recognizes that I'm the Messiah, and she's right to honor me in this way. And so don't miss what's happening here. This is not us honoring Jesus here. is God honoring you. He's anointing your head with oil. You are His honored guest. Can you believe this? I mean, the God of the universe is going to treat you with honor because He treats you like His Son. He treats you like His firstborn Son, Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus promises that in this final banquet, I think this does look forward to a future day when there will be a literal banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that banquet, Jesus will serve us. Can you picture it? That Jesus takes the towel and He comes and washes our feet. How can we not say with Peter... No way, Lord. You will not wash me. You cannot wash me. And Jesus said to Peter, if, if I don't wash you, I have no part with you. Peter says, then wash all me. See, Jesus' leadership does not keep Him from serving. In fact, His leadership is expressed in the greatest way, even in the eternal state. We kind of picture Jesus on His throne and just sitting around. Everybody have to do things for Him. Go, Hey, go get me something to drink. It's actually probably going to be more like the other way around. Not that we're barking out orders. We're just going to be, why are you doing anything for me? But, but why would Jesus' service change in the next life? We already have a promise that He will serve us. And we have a promise right here. God's prepared this great banquet for us. And He honors us by anointing our head with oil. And then He fills up our cup. So this is blessing. There's abundance, safety, honor, and then at the end of verse 5, blessing. My cup overflows. So after a long, hard day working out in the hot sun, what better way to finish than having a tall glass of cold, refreshing water and God saying, listen, I will give you what will satisfy. I'm going to fill up your cup till the brim. It's it's not going to, to, to ever run dry. He's like that waitress that always comes by and just keeps filling your cup before you're even able to, to get halfway down, right? God's saying, I'm going to keep it full. Remember, we saw that in Psalm 16, that that in Him is joy forevermore and, and uh, 
better better look at it. Uh, 16, Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, so filled up to the top like a cup that's overflowing, and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what's better than having a cup that's full and never runs out? Right. So pick your, pick your favorite drink, whatever that is. You know, maybe it's the um, peppermint mocha from Starbucks. If it's it's full and never ending, okay, that's God's going to do. It. Give us abundant blessing. I think that's a picture for what He will do. He's not going to be stingy and bless. You know, He didn't quite do enough for me. If we make it at the banquet, He's going to abundantly provide for us. So the first picture there as our host is at a banquet, and then the second picture is in His house, verse six. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So now the scene changes. We had it changed from a shepherd to a sheep. Now it's, and then we saw in verses 5 and 6, it's a host and a guest. The scene changes from at a banquet to at a house, and specifically God's house. That is His place of residency, His dwelling place. Uh, for For the Old Testament believer, the sanctuary. So before we get there, we need to see the promise that's going to lead us there, that we're going to get to this place. And here's the promise at verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. So just picture these two things, goodness and loving kindness, or loyal love. Goodness and loyal love. Picture them as two climbing guides to make sure that you get to that summit that you want to reach. They're going to follow you all the way and make sure you have everything that you need to get there. My nephew, Zach, is 17 years old. This past summer, he climbed Mount Kenya, 17,000 feet. And out of the dozen people ranging from, I think he was the youngest, up to probably in their 50s or 60s, my nephew was only one of two people that made it to the top because of altitude sickness or lots of other reasons just not being fit enough, whatever the case. Now, in order to get to the top, he couldn't just decide, hey, I'm just going to go head up to the top of the mountain. He could, but he probably would fail, maybe get lost. But in order to get there, he was accompanied by a guide. And the guide was there to help make sure that the way was efficient and that Zach was going in the right direction. The guide was there to know when it was time to stop because of weather, when it was time to, to move. We need to, we need to cover, you know, 10 miles today or whatever it is. The guide was there to help push him on and to encourage him and to challenge him. And so goodness and loyal love are like that guide. It's like we have two guides that are just there to make sure that we're being pushed in the right direction. And, and notice what it says here. Surely goodness and loyal love will follow me. This word follow actually means pursue. They're going to pursue us for all of our lives. That is, till, till the end of life. That, the, the phrase there, um, all the days of my life. That's how long that, that goodness and loyal love are going to pursue us. God's goodness and loyal love will always pursue us. No matter where we veer off course, you know, if my nephew decides, you know, I'm going to start heading this way because I see some flowers I want to take a picture of, whatever. No matter where we veer off course, 
God's loyal love and goodness are going to be there. And they'll bring us back to a path of righteousness that's going to lead us to where we need to go, where we want to go, to the summit. And the result is, at the end of verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This word dwell, if you look in the margin of your Bible, um, could be return. I could re- I will return to the house of the Lord forever. I think that's actually what it means here. The word that's translated as dwell in the Hebrew is actually the same word, same root word as in verse 3. Look at that. Verse 3, He restores my soul. So it's talking about returning. That word restores in verse 3 is the same root Hebrew word as the word dwell. So it's that I will return to the house of the Lord and, and instead of forever, really, length of days. Probably means the rest of his life. So what, what he's saying is you need to picture that David here is thinking about the sanctuary where God's, God's presence resided. His special presence was there at the sanctuary, at the tabernacle at that time. And this was a place where people could be taught God's Word and where they could offer sacrifices in atonement for their sins. They would learn God's righteous ways. They would, they would pray to Him there. They'd be welcomed into His house. And they'd find abundance and provision. And, and David's saying, you know, I want to keep coming back to this place. And that's what will happen as God guides me. God's going to constantly be guiding me back to a place where I'm in His presence, which is a picture of what's going to happen forever. So we automatically, I think, take this text and move to the application before understanding it. I think David's talking about coming there over and over again to the physical, literal house of God on the earth in Shiloh at that time, and then later Jerusalem. I think that's what David's talking about. But we move to the application. I think it's the right application that is talking about that we will have eventually the, 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 the great privilege of dwelling in God's house, His eternal home, right? There, there will be no temple in heaven, as we heard today. There will be no temple in heaven because God is the temple. See, God will be among us. We will be His people and He will be our God. And that's what this really, I think that's a good way to apply it. It's a foretaste of that future dwelling with God forever. So two important features of the psalm and one application. Feature number one, or we could just say principle, God is near. I think the central principle or feature is that God is near. That God doesn't abandon His sheep. And because God is near, we're going to have everything that we need. I shall not be in need. That's the idea of that first verse. We're going to have everything we need because God is near. Because God is near, we will not fear. Right? We go through the dark times in life and we don't have to fear because God's there. And because God's there, we'll return to Him. Right? I will return to the house of the Lord all the days of my life. When God is near, all the world seems far away. When God is near, every fear is set aside. When God is near, how can I stray And how can I falter? I'll stay upon the altar because I know my God is near. And David helps to remind us of that great truth that we cannot forget. And the reason I think the Scriptures are constantly reminding of this is because we are quick to forget it. That we look at our circumstances like the psalmist does sometimes and say, where is God? 
And we need to be confident that God is near. Second feature or principle is that God can be trusted. Okay, God is good. He's working for our good, isn't He? And so whether it be in pastures green or waters of peace or in valleys of darkness, God's rod and His staff will take us exactly where we need to go. He will pursue us all the way to the place where we need to be so that in the end, we will be back in the place where we belong, which is in His presence, verse 6. That's what He's leading us to do. And so we can trust Him, can't we? He's a good shepherd. He's a great host. I think the application for us is that I think you probably were already thinking this way, that Jesus Christ is our shepherd. Jesus Christ is our shepherd. And the reason that you were thinking about this is because you've read John 10 before, right? The, the metaphor here that's used by God, the God of Israel, is taken over by Jesus in John 10 to say, hey, this is how I treat my followers. I am the good shepherd, he says, right? And then I call my sheep and, and they know my voice and they follow me. Do you want to know who are mine? It's the ones who follow me because they know my voice, Jesus says. And, and just like God with Israel and David and us is not moving them in a direction to harm them or to lead them off into a path of unrighteousness, so Jesus does the same. He is leading us to be satisfied in Him. And so He will lead us in good pastures and He will not abandon us when danger comes. In fact, He'll do whatever it takes. Mark Furtado says in his commentary, Christ will do whatever it takes to bring you into God's presence, even if it means His own life. That's the Good Shepherd, right? The Good Shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. He loves them so much. He's willing to give up His life for them. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. And so as you're reminded of the great God and Savior that leads you to paths of goodness and blessing, you ought to be able to say with David, the Lord is my shepherd and I will not lack anything that I need. We have a good shepherd and He turns us into satisfied sheep. We are protected and guided and never abandoned. What more can we ask for? Let's uh, sing Psalm 23 together, number 21 in the hymns of praise. We saved our song until after. Hymns of 